I'm Q, this is Bird Road. Dave continues to be absent. Last I heard, he had been arrested for his part in a GoFundMe fraud. For our subscribers, if you get an email from Dave trying to raise money, just know that cake foot is not a recognized medical condition. Just send it to your spam. So we're continuing our coverage of Tuesday's primaries in Florida and looking a little bit wider all the way across South Florida, across the state. Today, we're joined by a name that if you're in South Florida, you probably know it from your email inbox from his time with the New Tropic. He was a reporter also at the Miami Herald. Today, he's the digital editor of the local Miami NPR affiliate, which is a WLRN consummate newsman. You can follow him on Twitter at LDixon underscore three, and you can follow his team's work over at WLRN.org or on your FM dial at 91.3 in Miami. Lance Dixon, welcome to Burn Road. Thanks for having me, David. So. First thing I want to ask is, how has it been covering, trying to cover things like elections and all this community-focused stuff during COVID? Like, what kind of adjustments do you guys have to make over there in terms of the way that you're reporting, especially for radio, where so much of it is getting out in the field and capturing audio? Sure. Yeah. So it's it's been a it's been a tricky kind of uh, kind of go for our, our reporting staff and and the host of our sort of weekly shows that we do. So all kudos to them for the flexibility they've shown throughout the pandemic. But essentially, it's a lot of, you know, coordinating with folks ahead of time, coordinating with campaign staffers, coordinating with folks that you might have reached out to for stories or folks that you're, you're seeing on social media might be having issues at the polls or, 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 you know, breezing through it and having no problems with it and and kind of saying, hey, would you be willing to talk with me could we hop on a zoom could we hop on a facetime call or skype call or or things like that uh so so that's the kind of new version of the sort of person on the street uh, approach that we would take just kind of being at a polling place microphone to somebody's mouth saying how to go in there or, or yeah. something like that or or being at a watch party or or something like that now that's all happening virtually and and, and it takes a little more uh front-end work yeah because you know you covered a lot of stuff in the business community and more like community focused things when you were at the new tropic. I mean, that was kind of the mission over there and WLRN obviously has always been like a community channel that everybody's um, relied on, but it seems like the pol the political angle has gotten so amped up and the coverage, the, the thirst for the coverage has sort of guided that, right? Has, has that been, I don't know, like how do you consider that when doing assignments and then trying to partial out you know, par, uh, parcel out resources like is that is is that just my perception or is that the case that it's become way more obviously it's a election year but that it's become way more um politics focused yeah no i think that's definitely fair um i mean you know obviously we we still have a, a dedicated healthcare reporter and folks like that who are looking at the ins and outs of, of daily updates on on covid 19 and 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 how that impacts different things across south florida but you know, I think that we saw this with uh, the, the different protests around social justice and just the fact that a lot of folks are, are, are coming to a realization that all politics is local and it kind of starts with that. And so I think that there was definitely a hunger for coverage of the August primary and coverage on what, you know, a lot of a lot of races that were kind of um, kind of collecting themselves onto the ballot across, you know, from Palm Beach down to the Keys. So everything from county commissioners to uh, school board members, to supervisors of election and then bigger name stuff like the county mayor's race here in Miami-Dade or the sheriff's race in Broward and state attorney's races in Broward and Miami-Dade and mayor of Key West. I mean, I, I think that a lot of folks kind of took a look or, or took a second to reflect and, and we have so much more time to reflect because we're all at home for the most part yeah. and kind of said, oh, wow, no, this is a big deal. I, I, I need to pay attention to this because 
a lot of this stuff is either going to, you know, bear out more in November or be decided um, right here in August. That's, that's interesting. You bring that up because I want to transition into talking about some of those races, but first um, I'm curious because you actually have reporters who are out there on the streets and, and in places when available and, and, and covering um, in physical space, as opposed to in digital space, which is what a lot of other places have been relegated to. And, I heard a story recently about um, a few days before early voting ended, uh, a blockade of um, Trump supporters who were making it with social distancing considerations difficult for people to access a, a library voting system or you know early voting at a library. And I'm wondering, as we look forward into November, do you see with all these new logistical concerns, have you heard with your ear to the ground any kind of problems like that or things that might rear up or, you know, I, I had asked a guest earlier this week what they thought would be the um, sort of like the hanging Chad moment of this COVID election. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. If you're, if you, from your perch there at WLR, at WLRN, if you're hearing stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we definitely saw the reports of that situation at the, the library, I think in Coral Gables it was. And, um, you know, we saw even a couple of things on, on election day. There were issues where uh, certain polling places had run out of uh, ballots or, you know, people had reached out and said, oh, you know, folks were being kind of turned away or pushed away by really aggressive campaign workers and things like that. I mean, those sorts of things are have been common and, and a part of South Florida elections for, for a while. Like, yeah. as you mentioned, you know, I, I covered a lot of this stuff when I was at the Herald, too. And, and, you know, we'd always get those sort of reports of people being like, oh, there's a shouting match or things got, you know, crazy at this particular place. Um, but no, that's, that's cer certainly something that we're keeping an eye on, because, you know, when you think about how people are voting and the apprehension they might have about going to a polling place in person with COVID in general, now, you know, a lot more folks are, are apprehensive about sending their vote by mail ballots through the mail. So they might want to take advantage of that early voting opportunity to drop it off at their early voting location. So if, if there's a person out there or there are groups of people who are being aggressors just for that, you know, just for a person trying to walk from their car literally to a drop off box, then, you know, it's definitely something we're going to be keeping an eye on. I want to get you to weigh in on a couple of the results, starting with um, the Miami-Dade County mayor. Obviously, uh, Daniela Levinkava, as we mentioned on the show, she's going to head to a runoff with uh, Steve Bovo, who, um, who another uh, fellow city com uh, county commissioner of hers. What can we expect from that race uh, in between now and November, now that the field has kind of been cleared of a lot of the other um, uh, candidates? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think we've seen this a lot in, um, you know, reporting that, some folks on our team have done, but, you know, it also places like the Miami Herald uh, with, you know, with Doug Hanks and, and others who have been following that race closely. Um, it's probably going to get a little nasty. Um, and, and, and it's drawing a lot of comparisons to, um, to the, the 2016 presidential campaign, even between, uh, you know, current president Trump and, and the democratic nominee, uh, you know, Senator Hillary Clinton, where, you know, she, uh, you know, even though the Miami-Dade County mayor's race in name is a nonpartisan race, um, Supposedly. you know, uh, Right, allegedly, supposedly, et cetera. Um, you know, Commissioner Bovo is very staunchly conservative. Uh, uh, Commissioner Daniela Levinkava is obviously uh, very progressive and, and, and Democrat. And so, you know, I think I think those polls are going to be uh, kind of cast against each other, and um, it's, it's going to be interesting to see. I think how both candidates reach out to those independent voters, those moderate voters, or those voters who just might not have really participated in the process. 
for the August election, you know, now they've, they've got to maybe try to drum up some interest and say, hey, it wasn't decided then. It's not over. Uh, we, you know, we still need folks to head out there. And this this decision is still in your hands uh, come November 3rd. Yeah, it's it's been a pretty apart from the um, standard fare of, uh, you know, attack ads here and there getting tossed back and forth. It feels like it's been a pretty straightforward um, race uh, without a lot of scandals. Now, I, I draw that I say that to draw the distinction between the great, you know, the great reporting that members of your team did on the state's attorney's office race, which was only tertiarily involved with the with the race itself. It was more about the incumbent, um, uh, Catherine Fernandez Rundle. She wound up winning, as we had mentioned on the show before. She wound up winning by a pretty wide margin against her challenger, Melba Pearson, who had has been on the show before. And it was kind of a very demoralizing result, especially when you consider your colleague, Danny Rivero, had covered this sort of pay-to-play scandal uh, at Rundle's office, and we haven't really talked about that here on this show. Can you? Um, I, know, I know you. You know you. You know Danny, and you were uh, you know alongside the reporting and stuff like that. And you, it's your outlet. Can you walk us through a little bit of that that reporting and how that story came about? And you know, I want, I'm wondering if you're surprised that the that the result was so lopsided still in her favor, in spite of uh, in spite of that that scandal. Sure. Yeah. And no, I, I can tackle both parts of that. So, yes, I mean, with, with the case of Danny's uh, story, he had been working on that even prior to my joining WLRN. It, it had been about a year that he had been following this tip about this uh, this Denise Moon Memorial Fund that basically, uh, for you know, for certain cases, uh, in order to kind of secure a deal or in order to finalize a deal uh, with the prosecutor's office, folks would um, would make a contribution to this to this fund. And the fund would help support all kinds of nonprofits and programs uh, around South Florida. And it was done in conjunction with the Miami Foundation. And it, it's not very widely known about, or, or and, and people don't really look into it that often. Um, and, uh, you know, prior to Danny's story, I think a lot of folks just didn't really know the ins and outs of it or even know that it existed. And a lot of prosecutors and I, and I think, you know, defense attorneys, they kind of just looked at it and said, oh, well, no, that's just, that's just part of how it works. Um, and, and nobody really questioned it much. And so, you know, he, he had been working on that for a while and, and the state attorney's office said, Hey, you know, like, even though we're involved in this, um, you know, the Miami foundation handles things and we are, you know, we kind of just act in a sort of advisory role and, and, and so forth. And, and, and they, they kind of played down the idea of it being a sort of, as you, as you alluded to a sort of pay to play operation, but even in, in the follow-up reporting from that, you know, Danny talked to a former prosecutor and she said, yeah, it wasn't talked about much. Um, and it wasn't something that was made clear to new staffers. It was kind of just a thing that, ah, uh, you know, it, it, it was mentioned in a sort of passing reference right. and, and moved on from. Which you, th- you would um, think that if it was if it was an institutionalized above board standard and practice, it would be codified somewhere. You would think that it was a thing that's like, OK, this is our procedure for, you know, when we have these specific types of defendants that maybe they can, you know, do this diversionary donation in lieu of whatever trouble that they got in. But to hear that it was not, you know, codified or, or, or written out, that should have been like a real red flag, I think. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and I, and I think that, you know, to your second question, I think it did raise a lot of red flags for a lot of people. And I think, um, you know, Melba Pearson in, in her in her campaign following the release of that story definitely mentioned it a lot, mentioned some of the critiques that she had had of, of, of the incumbent's time in office and so forth and kind of meshed that all together. Um, but as far as the result itself, um, I, I can't say that I was overwhelmingly surprised. I think that 
you know, and, and Danny touched on this a bit in his story on Tuesday night, kind of looking at the race and looking at the, the strong challenge that Melba Pearson uh, posed to, to Kathy Rundle. Um, you know, she, she raised a lot of groundswell, I think, in, in recent months. And I think that it was, you know, very loud and, and, and very pronounced. And obviously, she's a very qualified candidate in her own right, you know, serving in that office, serving with ACLU of Florida and so forth. But I think that even with the, the attention that she garnered and the, and the groundswell that she had raised, it wasn't enough, I think, to convince certain voters and voters in heavily Hispanic parts of Miami-Dade County um, and folks who just might still might have put the, the name to some of these issues that have been talked about at protests and so forth. And so ultimately, they might have still shown up at the ballot box or filled out their mail ballot and said, well, I know Kathy Rumble's name, so I'm just going to run with that. So. Um, so yeah, I mean, but but for a you know for a first time candidate in a position like this, and with the amount of attention she was able to draw in this challenge, and to still secure a pretty solid amount uh, of the vote, I mean, I, I think it for for supporters of her, I think that they can look to that, and, and you know maybe we'll see how things go a, a few years from now. You talk about the the familiarity of the last name, and I think I'm sure that that had a lot to play in with it. And um, we've talked before about the kind of inroads that that uh, Rundle has just as an institution here in this state. But it's not the first time, and I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot here as we transition over to um, talking about a bunch of like really great young black candidates who who did a great job in Broward County. It was a a, a banner election primary for for them, and a lot of them that won their primary are probably going to end up winning their positions. But in Miami-Dade, before we talk about that, is there a problem for black candidates running for countywide seats in Miami? Because it seems like... I mean, you can kind of blame it on the last name Olympics a little bit, but it, it seems like they just never are able to get the, the 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 wider appeal in this county. And I don't like the implications that that carries with it. I don't think anybody would, but I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Sure. Yeah. I mean, wow. There's a lot of layers to that. Uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> succinctly in about ninety seconds yeah. or less, just you yeah, know, unpack yeah. all of the systemic, you know, cr- you know cross national racism that is institutionalized in our system. Should be sure. Easy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. To put it mildly, there's there's a lot to unpack there. Um, no, I, uh, I I think that that's definitely interesting. And and the Miami Herald actually this week just dropped a really great series, kind of looking at the sort of challenges of upward mobility for the black community. Um, here, here in, in Miami-Dade County, um, and and I think that you know a big part of it is you know you, you talked about the names. I mean, there are some some names um, in the Black community that have been able to to find success, and and even you know throughout across families. I mean, the Hardiman family is, is one that comes to mind. Um, you know, Arthur Teal before you know his tragic uh, uh, downfall, uh, you know, a while ago, more than a decade ago. Um, you know, he found some success and rose to a pretty prominent spot in, in, in the county. But, you know, I think that there's still there's still a lot of I think there's still some challenges in, you know, African-American folks. And I say and I say that explicitly uh, because, you know, I, I think that folks like, you know, Commissioner John Monestine, he found success. He was a mayoral candidate until he decided to, you know, to withdraw his candidacy. Um, I think that folks in other, you know, in other parts of South Florida, um, whether they are Haitian American or, or, or from the Caribbean or, um, you know, even West African, you know, up in my gardens and, and in North Miami and other places have found success. Um, and for some reason, you know, folks who are, are African American 
it, it's very hit or miss. It's very, you know, they, they find success here and there. You know, maybe they might be a city commissioner or they might be a city attorney or right. they might, you know, find success here and there. But when it comes to rising to those, those top level positions, um, it can be very spotty. And, I, and it, you know, I can't quite say why that disparity exists here in Miami-Dade County versus, as you mentioned, in Broward County, you know, the public defender's office, uh, the state attorney's race there, uh, you know, some some young black candidates found success there. Um, and so it, it's, it's very it's very difficult to kind of put a put a pin on it. But I think that it does speak to, you know, just the the way that that generationally things have happened since, you know, the late uh, sort of late 80s and the 90s and so forth. There's been a very strong um, support and a very strong base of support for Cuban Americans, for Caribbean American folks who have, who, you know, who migrated over Haitian American folks who have been able to find a lot of success here. And, you know, in the aftermath of the, uh, the McDuffie uprising, yeah, there was there was a promise of a lot of upward mobility and a lot of support for the black community here. And it's been very segmented. Um, and I think it remains so. And so folks who, uh, you know, African-American folks find success in largely African-American communities, and cities and enclaves, but it might not translate at the county level. And I think there's still, you know, for <laughs> even in 2020, still some work to be done there. Meanwhile, up north in Broward County, just, uh, you know, our neighbor to the north, which is within your coverage footprint, or WLRN, you yeah. guys cover a lot of stuff up there. A uh, number yeah. of young, like I mentioned, black candidates who, who um, seems like a common thread in terms of these uh, younger black candidates who beat white opponents who were maybe older than them. It, a lot of yeah. their campaigns sort of centered on social justice and criminal justice reform. I'm wondering if you can walk us through a few of those that might have surprised you. And I'm talking just generally about um, like Sheriff Gregory Tony, who mm. defeated former sheriff and another sort of South Florida institution, Scott Israel. Um, you yeah. you alluded to Harold Pryor, who won the state attorney's office race, um, a primary, and is likely yeah. to win the race. Gordon Weeks has won uh, public defender's office. Um, I don't know. What stood out to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that definitely the state attorney's uh, race, uh, that, that Democratic primary stood out because there were there was a lot of support uh, for, for Joe Kimmock, even at a, at a sort of national level. Um, and and, and he, he made a strong showing. I think he ended up finishing second uh, to Harold. Um, but I, I was sort of surprised to see that. I mean, I think that their platforms are, are, are slightly similar with some, you know, with some differentiation um, that might have kind of split voters there, but it was interesting to see that. And, and just interesting to see that, you know, uh, our, our Broward County reporter, Katie Sotalski had a story about this on Tuesday and, and, and kind of looking at, you know, this new sort of uh, guard um, in Broward County. Uh, I, I just thought the whole collective situation there was interesting. And, and as far as the sheriff's race, I mean, it, <laughs> we're talking about, you know, stuff that, that got nasty and got heated with tech ads and so forth. I mean, yeah. that was probably top of the bill in, in South Florida. Um, you know, I think that I think the sheriff Tony, after the, the kind of controversy around how he even got appointed by Governor DeSantis and and the, the links that Scott Israel went to, to try to get a seat back, um, you know, I, I think that after the dust settled there and and and, and folks kind of looked at what he had done so far, um, he, you know, he endeared, endeared himself to a lot of folks and 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 survivors of, of the Parkland shooting and and advocates there, you know, around that and for gun violence, gun control, um, and so. Yeah, I, 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 I think it was interesting that he was able to kind of, you know, squeak that one out. And even Al Pollock, who was endorsed by, you know, the, the sheriffs up there, the sheriff's union. And it, it was an interesting kind of three headed uh, situation going on there. But it, it'll be it'll be really, I think, interesting to see how that all plays out and how those offices kind of 
work in conjunction with each other moving forward. Yeah, but I think the one thing that you can definitely say is that after yes, or after Tuesday, I should say, Broward is going to be a place where it seems as though it's going to be a place where criminal justice reform and a lot of these hot, hot button, hot stove issues that we've been grappling with as a nation for the last three or four months, they're going to be centered. I mean, they're going to be, instead of just being, uh, I guess, like dealt with in more of an appeasing kind of way or just just dealt with like in a public relations kind of way, it really does seem like, um, I don't know, maybe I'm over celebrating this, but it seems like a, like, like a bright spot as far as that goes. No, I, I think that you're you're spot on there, and I and I think that that's definitely something that a lot of folks watching all those races, you know, they were looking at. I mean, we were talking about institutions that that uh, that that aren't on the you know, aren't in those positions any longer. I mean, Scott Israel, but also Mike Satz, who had been in the you know in the uh, state attorney's role there in Broward for for decades. Yeah. Uh, Howard Finkelstein, you know, had been there for for quite some time. You know, <laughs> folks who who watch Channel Seven in Miami will know they help me, Howard. Oh, Howard uh, yeah. kinda, <laughs> kind of saying what they used to do. So he, you know, he's no longer there in the public defender's office. So it's a real sea change moment. And so I, I think that your, your optimism or, or the, or, or the idea that there might be a lot of eyeballs on, on those, on those seats and on those positions is, is well placed. Uh, Cause a lot of those candidates have talked about that. And a lot of folks who have been active and vocal up, up in Broward County about ideas of funding the police or reallocating police funding and looking at, you know, mandatory minimums for drug offenses and all those sorts of things. Um, yeah, these, these folks in these positions are really going to have to, to hear those things out and, and might might be more inclined maybe than, uh, you know, some, some prior officials to, to make change happen there. One thing we haven't talked about shifting our focus a little bit back down south is um, the new complexion of what the Miami-Dade County Commission is going to look like. Because uh, now that we have the benefit of a few days after the election, like we can think about the fact that, I mean, like half the commission ran for, or a third of the commission, <laughs> a big amount of the commission ran for higher office. And and uh, there was like a confluence of new rules that kind of took effect this year um, with respect to term limits. And then also a, a rule that and I'm just paraphrasing it here. I don't remember the exact language, but basically if you're, if you're seeking higher office, you have to resign from your seat effective at the end of, uh, your campaign basically. Sure. So, um, and I might have the particulars of that wrong, but it's basically the net effect is that it's, it's cracking this sort of monolithic block of the same names by and large that we've known for a long time in Miami and opening up for a lot of new names and faces. What, what are we looking forward to with the Miami Dade County commission going forward? Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's interesting that you say that because there definitely will be some new names and some new, uh, voices and ideas there, but there's also some names that folks might know. I mean, Raquel yeah. Regalado is running for a county commission. Exactly. Seat. That's uh, true. So yeah, some yeah, retreads, yeah. a lot of retreads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, Ke- Keon Hardiman is in a, is going to be in a runoff for, for the district uh, three commission seat. Um, yeah. So and then even with, with Regalado, she's running against uh, somebody now who is, um, you know, a name that if you're from South of the, uh, South of the 836, you know, you know, Cindy Lerner's name because she was the mayor of Pinecrest. So sure, these are people sure. who have passed <laughs> to your point. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, but, but, to, but as, as you stated though, honestly, um, it, it is, it is an interesting step because even, even for those folks and those familiar names, you know, they've operated at either a city level or a school board level in Raquel Regalado's case. Um, Oliver Gilbert was the mayor of Miami Gardens. He's going to be in a county commission position now. So defeated Sabrina even, Fulton, the, the mother of um, Trayvon Martin in an interesting yeah, no, result yeah. that I, I, I did not think with all the national 
attention that her campaign had gotten. <laughs> I did not think that that was going to go that way. Yeah, it's really, and it was a really tight race to, to that yeah. point. Um, I, and I, you know, I think just, you know, even with those slightly familiar names, um, there's still going to be, um, it's just, it's just a new platform for those folks and it's a new opportunity for them to do, you know, whatever they were doing in their previous positions. Now they have this larger footprint to make, to really impact, you know, millions of residents, you know, from a County commission level, even if they're just, you know, you know, a lot of folks, obviously, you know, they care about their district and bringing things back to their district. But, you know, when you're at their dais and you're, you know, in County hall or virtually, you know, for the time being, you know, you have a much larger, you know, uh, megaphone in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how those, how those voices all mesh together with the existing folks who are, are still going to be around. Um, and then, you know, whoever wins the county mayor seat, uh, it's also going to be interesting because while, whether it's Levine Cava or Bobo, those will be familiar names, there'll be a new position and they'll have new influence to, to, to wield as, as a strong mayor. So, it's it's going to be really fascinating <laughs> to see how all those personalities uh, uh, come together uh, moving moving forward. So yeah, I'm I'm really interested in that, and I think that's why you saw a lot of interest in those races. Um, you know, in, in this past Tuesday, you mentioned um, the outgoing mayor Carlos Jimenez. One of the funnier, or in depending on your perspective, one of the more disheartening things to do is. Anytime he has a live stream going on Facebook or anytime he just posts, it, it, it could be the most innocuous thing in the world on Facebook. Uh -huh. Just watching the stream of comments that come in and attack him. Uh, now, instead of being on the left and the right, it's it's more, you know, uh, pro-virus, stay-at-home, pro-open-the-economy sides that, that are attacking the poor guy from both. And I have no affection for Carlos Jimenez as people, as listeners of the show know, but he's getting it from both sides. I'm wondering if in your reporting, as you guys talk to people that are actually out there, people that are voting and, and, and these candidates, have you seen, I know obviously COVID is on everybody's mind. It's governing a lot of the way that we live these days. Are, are voters holding candidates to account over their performance, uh, of you know getting us ready for the um for the pandemic or uh, urging one way or another whether to open or whether to slow the openings or like is that part of the considerations that the that 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 voters are bringing into the ballot box um it has has it affected and i wonder if it affects one way more than the other right uh, i don't know what what have what have you seen or heard out there in terms of the way people are processing what miami dade what broward what south florida you know uh, leaders have done uh, surrounding the pandemic and, and whether or not they're holding them to account at the ballot box on that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and, and so we had a, we had a mayoral forum on WLRN along with the Herald and the Chamber of Commerce a few weeks ago. And that was one of the questions. And that was definitely, you know, one that, that came up a lot uh, was, was kind of just, okay, you know, we're, we're in this moment. Obviously Carlos Menes has been at the lead at the helm and working with state and, and national uh, experts on how we move forward. Um, and, you know, from the county commission level, you know, folks like Daniela Levine Cava or, or, or Steve Bobo are, are vocal and, 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 and have their, their, you know, their, their opinions, but, you know, yeah, they definitely have some different approaches or some different thinking, I think, around uh, moving forward with the pandemic and what the plans should be and what the priorities should be. Um, and I think that that's going to be an interesting kind of dichotomy, again, getting back to the sort of party element of things. So I, I think that, in a lot of cases, you've seen, um, you know, Steve Bobo talk a lot about, 
you know, business and, and supporting businesses and things like that, which is recovery and, and kind of trying to focus on the economic end of things, which I think kind of falls in line with the, the folks who are very vocal on reopening and, and, and might be more of a sort of conservative leaning viewpoint, whereas uh, the Yellow Levine Kava has, has cautioned slowing things and, you know, adhering to the, the guidance of scientists and experts and, and so forth. Um, and so we'll see if that that kind of plays the same role um, in, you know, both their political ideologies and, and some of their uh, social ideologies, as well as how they're looking at the pandemic and, and, and how that impacts voters um, will, will be interesting for sure. So before we let you go, I want to play a little game with you, okay? And uh, it, this right. is a game that's going to be called That Didn't Happen. Wait, did that actually happen? So I'm going to read to you scenario and we're going to widen the scope because you're an expert here in South Florida, but I'm thinking maybe some of the hinterlands and the goings on up near the panhandle and on the, you know, other coasts might, uh, might, might trip you up a little bit. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to, uh, um, I'm going to read to you a scenario that purportedly played out over the primary election cycle. And it's up to you to tell us first, if this scenario actually happened and if you can name the parties involved. So it's, I think some of these might be easy for you, but we're going we're gonna to run through three of them. And I think that uh, okay. I might trip you up. Let me, let me, let me give it a crack. So okay. in, in Palm Beach, a Republican congressional primary was won by a far-right conspiracy theory-obsessed commentator who's best known for her anti-Muslim rhetoric, chaining herself to Twitter's corporate headquarters to appeal her account suspension, and getting banned for life from Uber for abusing drivers. Wait, did that actually happen? That, uh, that did very much happen. Um, that would be one Laura Loomer, whose name I will never write out on Twitter for that reason. Because um, I don't want uh, Smart Q- move. QAnon bo- yeah. Yeah, I don't want QAnon bots coming at me. Um, you put two zeros yeah. where the O's are or something like that to Precisely. keep it from being searchable. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but uh, but no, Laura Loomer uh, was successful in her Republican primary on Tuesday. She's going to face Lois Frankel in November, and we'll, we'll see how that plays out. That's right. So you're one for one. Uh, okay, number two, an Osceola County Democrat facing felony charges for impersonating a law enforcement officer during a heated homeowners association meeting that got out of hand has won his primary uh, in a state house seat. Wait, did that actually happen? Hmm. A little more obscure. I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm, gonna I'm gonna say. Yes, because um, it sounds vaguely familiar, but I, I don't remember the name of the party. Involved. You are right. And the name is Fred Hawkins, who was arrested for impersonating a law enforcement officer last year from the um, Florida Politics article about it. Uh, he posted a $1,000 bond and was released later uh, that day from the Osceola County Jail. And at the time, which I think he still is, he's serving his third term as an Osceola County commissioner. So he had already won some measure of political uh, notoriety prior prior to this so that's right uh, fred hawkins and uh yeah. g- good good luck i guess in in the the general fred um <laughs> our last one in tampa a trump supporting far right what far right wing candidate who filmed an ad edited to look like she was firing a machine gun at congress defeated her heavily favored establishment opponent and another opponent who had called for the hanging of Minnesota Representative Ilhan Omar. Wait, did that actually happen? Oh boy. Um, 
I think this one did too, actually. And yeah. sadly, I think it's because of the, I think it's because of the latter point. I remember that one. Right. You're correct. <laughs> the person we're talking about is Ana Paulina Luna, who won her uh, primary. Uh, it was very unexpected. She came out of nowhere, defeated somebody, uh, a, um, a Tampa area favorite establishment GOP name named uh, Amanda Maki, who I don't really know any of these people. I try not to pay much attention to Tampa. But um, yeah, so her, her other opponent had been uh, the very well-known, I believe his name is Joe. Gosh, I forget his name. But uh, he was, he, he raised eyebrows earlier this year by sending uh, one of her opponents by sending out an email suggesting not only that you should have to be born in the U.S. to serve in Congress, but that uh, Ilhan Omar uh, should be hanged. So, yeah, um, the moral of this story is that, spoiler alert, if it's some crazy stuff happening in Florida, then like it probably happened. Like it's just, yeah, that's that's the that's the cheat code. If it's insane, then yes, it did happen. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> so, um Lance, thank you for being a good sport, coming on the show and spending some time with us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me.